0: I come to this message with a heavy heart this morning because I want to talk to you about the sickness, about the serious illness of one for whom I have tremendous love and deep respect. For nations before God are like individuals. Nations are born, nations are nurtured, they live, Nations have a relationship with God and a responsibility to God. Nations get sick, and nations die and are buried. I want to talk to you this morning about the sickness of the nation. As a matter of fact, God has something to say about a nation's illness. The setting of our text, takes place just after the temple has been built and dedicated. God has come in flaming glory to dwell His house. It is a place of great sacrifice where the thrice holy God is worshiped and the dedication is over and Solomon is in his home and God comes to him. And God says to Solomon, If something happens in the nation and you see some problems, if you see the symptoms of illness, of sickness, if I send locusts to devour the land and pestilence, then I have a remedy, I have a cure, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. For when a nation gets sick, only God can heal it. When a nation gets sick at heart, He is the only physician available. When a nation gets ill, unless God heals that nation, that nation dies. And so I come this morning with some sadness. I come not only with sadness, I come with some fear. A number of years ago, Canon Frederick Donaldson listed the seven deadly sins of society. You've heard them many times. You've seen them written. I just want to remind you of them. Policies without principles. Wealth without work. Pleasure without conscience, knowledge without character, industry without morality, science without humanity, worship without sacrifice. Could it be that the nation experiences a terminal illness, In 1962, a play opened on Broadway that had as its basic theme the disintegration of the basic human relationships. And with its vile language and lewd behavior, and with its betrayal of everything that you and I hold decent, it sought to show the problems of a drug, permissive drug and sex culture. The title of the play was a song sung first by faculty wives. It was later sung by a history professor who sought to defy his wife, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And in the last scene of the play, it was sung again, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And the professor's wife cried, I am, George, I am. She was afraid of herself, and she had a right to be, and so am I. I, as a pastor, am somewhat of a student of Bible and of history, not an authority, but a student. I, too, am afraid of Virginia Woolf. I'm afraid of a culture that has to take a trip to unreality to face its problems, and the drug problem in America is reaching epidemic proportions. I'm afraid of a society where a man has to get drunk or at least has to have a cocktail in his hands to talk to another man intelligently. I'm afraid of a culture that belittles God and morality and puts down the church. I'm afraid of what might be at the end of the road down which America plunges. And I am afraid of the anger of an offended, thrice holy God. I too am afraid of Virginia Woolf. And so I come to talk to you in fear and in sorrow and submit to you that the problems in America, even though it is the greatest nation on earth, the problems in America are symptoms of a terrible illness. I want you to think of them with me, those symptoms. And God said to Solomon, if you begin to see pestilence, and if you begin to see the locusts devour the land, then you know, then you look beyond to the source of the problem and understand that these are symbols of my judgment. I want us to look at some of the symptoms of the illness that are that may be bring about the death of a nation, and the judgment of a holy God. There is in our time political sickness. This has been called the no-leader generation, the the era of the anti-hero. America in the past, when she's faced a crisis, always has had a strong leader with national conviction and courage to lead us Where are the Lincolns and the Jeffersons and the Washingtons and the Roosevelts? Strong leadership theologically and historically has been God's blessing upon a nation and weak leadership has been His curse. For example, when Israel was right, she had David. When Israel was wrong, she had Ahab and Jezebel. Where are the heroes with national courage? Someone has suggested that they have been replaced by the weak without conviction, the age of the anti-hero. There is domestic sickness in our land. This is the age of the special interest groups. There is division in the land. The rich divided against the poor, and the poor against the rich. The young divided against the old and the old against the young. Management against labor and labor against management. Ownership against player and player against ownership. Black against white and white against black. I tell you there is no unity in the body of the land. And where there is unity, It has been because of God's gift of blessing. And where there has been His judgment, there has been disunity and fragmentation. For when the nation turned its back on God and built its tower, He scattered the nation and confused her. And this confusion and this unrest is not only in America, but it is everywhere in our world. While I preach this morning, There is terrible unrest in the nation, in the world. It's like a boiling cauldron of confusion and revolution. In Central America and in South America, we have a minister here this morning from Ecuador. Brother Ben Murray told me last week that he listens on his ham radio to the missionaries. He talks to a friend of mine in Ecuador, or he did for a while, a missionary friend down there, Gerald Doyle. And the rumbling in South America is that the day of the missionaries in Ecuador and in South America is coming quickly to a close. In Mexico and in Cuba, in Africa there is a cauldron of unrest and revolution. In the Middle East, last week you read as I that the Khomeini regime is tottering and about to fall. And I've read that political observers are suggesting that part of the unrest in Iran is related to the Marxist revolutionaries who are infiltrating that government and when she falls, the Soviets will move in and they'll have the rich oil lands of the Middle East in the palm of their hand. And to read the newspaper this morning is to read about the forces of Russia that are arming themselves on the coast of on the borders of Poland, and that nation is in turmoil and confusion. And out of these seed beds of unrest and revolution, communism flourishes domestic sickness in our world. It's a day of economic sickness. There's not a single one of us here this morning Who could not identify with the spiraling cost of living? It's almost impossible for one person in the household to make a living. Runaway inflation and the burdening sense of taxation that is bowing us down so that the cost of living has so accelerated that the average person cannot own his home any longer. This is a day of spiritual sickness. Listen to me. The great cities of America are vastly becoming churchless. You can go to the large cities, especially the north and the east, and it's becoming increasingly difficult to find a church open on Sunday night. We have a minister this morning in our service from California who may could testify with me that on the West Coast there is vast seas of people who are churchless and godless. We are talking more about God, but the truth of the matter is the, great, the citizenry of this great land are becoming less, less church people. That's true in our own community. Now, you might dispute that, but let me tell you, even though there are more people perhaps coming to First Baptist Church than in two decades here, when you consider the increase of the population of this city, and you look at the people in church on Sunday morning and Sunday night, you will say with me, this community is becoming churchless. We found in our marketplace analysis that two-thirds of the people of Bible Belt Durant are not enrolled in Bible study on Sunday morning. Are you? This is becoming an age of the parks and the lakes and the stadium. I want to challenge you this morning. You just count up and write down how many times this past year you went to the lake or to the football stadium, or to relatives and friends that was not an emergency of illness or the like, and you contrast or compare that with the number of times you were in God's house. Ours is a nation that has turned its back upon God. We have taken His name and we've made it a byword, and we've taken it to church and made it a glorified country club. And we've taken the name of his son and at best we've made it a curse word. And we've taken the home and we've neglected it to the point that we just kind of hang our hat there and gulp down our food while we're watching television. And we've taken the Bible and we've ridiculed it. Or worse than that, we've ignored it. And so we're raising a generation of children that haven't the slightest idea what's in here. And we're raising a generation of children that have not seen their parents consistently opening and dividing the Word of God. This is the age when the homosexuals have come out of the closets and we've taught our children, our young men, how to drink. And we've taught our children sexual looseness and license and we've called it progress, it is progress. It's progress on the way down to hell. And we've called this age the cocktail age. So that any time you turn on your television and you see a social function in Washington, every man there or the majority has a cocktail in his hands. Does it bother you? that the decisions of our country are being made by men whose reasons are clouded with drink. I can remember the time, and I'm not too old, when a politician couldn't get elected in this land with such kind of conduct. We're intimidated people. We've lost our national courage and our national conviction, and it's sobering and sombering to hear a Russian exile stand in in the legislative halls of America and say, I fled Russia because I heard of the American dream and I'm finding in America the same things I'm finding in my own country. nation is sick, is there a remedy, is there a cure? God's word says there is. But before we can find the remedy and the cure, I think there are some illusions that we need to explode this morning. I want you to hang with me just a second. I think you and I are living under some illusions that need to be exploded. Before we'll even turn to the remedy, one is that a well-equipped life is automatically a happy life. That's an illusion. Folks, the greatest... Illusion in America today might be just this, that if you have a bunch of things, you'll be happy. That's not true. We ought to be the happiest people in the world, but we're not. As a matter of fact, those who have the most are the most unfulfilled in many places. There is a second illusion, and that is that if we have great means by which to live, we will automatically have great goals for which to live. That's an illusion. Someone said that we're traveling, we're able to travel today faster, twice as fast as the speed of sound, and we have nowhere to go. Another said, we are intellectual giants and moral and spiritual pygmies. This is, as the word of Pentecost said, an untoward generation. Just because we have great means by which to live, we don't have dynamic eternal purposes for which to live automatically. Third illusion. That is, that we'll always be free. I think that sometimes we can hear this so much in churches on 4th of July. What did you expect with this? That we'll not always be free. That we just kind of drift into the illusion that we will be always free. No, friend. I want you to imagine with me, I want you just to think with me that there are a lot of freedoms you don't have today that you had last year. I want you to believe this for it's true that gaining freedom is easier than keeping it. And there is a fourth illusion and that is this, the illusion of the inevitability of progress. There are some of us who believe that progress is perpetuated by the evolutionary process and its cultural application. That is to say that progress is in the evolutionary scheme and that we're just going to keep on progressing. Folks, that is an illusion. For the direction of man since the fall has not been upward but downward. And America or your home or your church or your own life is not going to automatically get better. So what is the symptom and what are the cures? What is the remedy and what are the cures? Number one, right out of the text. Now the clock on my pulpit is wrong. I have 12.04. It couldn't be that late. Maybe later than I think. What time is it? 11.50, I'll be through at 12. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves, humble themselves, it means to bow your head and bow your heart before God. It means to lay aside our arrogance, and our self-sufficiency and beat our breast and cry, God be merciful to me, I'm bankrupt. It means to come to the place and position where a man recognizes that he has nothing, if my people humble themselves and pray. You know what the least attended service in the church is? Sure you do. And I went over to the prayer room and I looked at the names of the people on the prayer list who have been in the prayer room. What a tremendous privilege, a beautiful room, one hour a week for people to come and pray. And I thought to myself, you know when this church back in the spring was experiencing that attitude and that atmosphere of revival, it was when our folks were coming consistently and in large numbers and they were praying and the coldness and the resistance that some of us may sense today, I think, can be directly related to our prayerlessness. Where are the people who are groaning before God? I remember not long ago there was a drought in West Texas, and they finally decided what we're going to do about it is pray about it, pray for rain. And on the next morning, in the Sweetwater paper, it had this kind of a headline: "Has it come to that?" <laughs> Has it? You know, like, you know, you don't pray except in a crisis. Has it come to that? We've got to pray? It may be true that that's about all, only time that we do pray is when there is a crisis or an emergency. Folks, it has come to that. It's time for desperate praying, I'm convinced. It's time for men and women to go before God and pray that he'll restrain his righteous anger until he gives his nation a chance to repent again. It's come to that. And as I say that, I, I'm looking out at faces who are saying to me back, reflecting back to me, oh, sure it is. And I don't think it's going to be that like we sing about, just a little talk with Jesus makes it right. I don't think just a little talk with Jesus is going to matter. I think it's going to require some agonizing and some groaning before God. Amen? Some of the time when I hear myself pray, I think about a man who is dying with heart, a a cardiac, with a heart attack, and he's dying with that, and he's and he's constantly reminding the doctor of his ingrown toenail. That's kind of the, some of the kind of the praying we do. Father, Aunt Susie, bless Aunt Susie and bring her back to church. She got her feelings hurt at the pastor, and we need to pray for her. Folks, let me tell you something. We may be in the position where little prayers, insignificant, silly, petty stuff like that or a waste of time. That's not going to matter whether Aunt Susie's mad at the preacher or not if our children are perishing with hunger and if our citizens are burned with fallout. It's not going to matter, that kind of stuff, if we're having to worship in the catacombs and in the darkness. If my people will pray and if they'll seek my face, folks, you can't seek the face of God if you've turned your back on him. It means to hunger and thirst after his countenance. It means to believe that his smile of approval is the difference between success or failure. And shall turn from their wicked ways. For America cannot have her freedom and her sin You and I can't have our blessing from God and our favorite sins. You and I can't expect God to shower down His goodness and guidance upon us if we have in our life that which is a violation of His holiness. Is repentance obsolete? And so Joshua prepared his men to go into Ai to battle Don't even take the whole army. A couple of thousand will do. And they were soundly defeated. And the reason they were impotent and defeated, the only battle they lost in the land of Canaan, the only one, was because they had violated God's will. And they buried, one man buried treasure in the tent that God said he couldn't keep. One man. What that says to me? It says that this church will not be blessed of God as long as there is one of us out of His will. Turn from your ways, He said. That's the solution. Simple as that, but not that simple. When I preached here in view of a call. July the 17th I believe it was I said this and I feel like it should be said now that in red China a few years ago it was against the law to worship things are changing now they had three laws in red China one was no two people could meet together and worship no, no two, no, none of the same two people could ever meet twice. If I met tonight with Tim in worship, I could never meet with Tim in worship again. A second law was that no person could ever meet twice at the same place. If I met to worship tonight at First Baptist Church, I could never meet here again to worship. The third law was that nobody could publicize the place of the worship or promote it And so the Christians in Red China had contacts. They were these men and women who would secretly plan the place of worship and be sure that no two people had ever met together twice and promote the worship services. The latter was against the law. To be found was to be put to death in the market square And so the Red Guard was constantly watching out for for the contact. The contact was the person who kept up with all this. When they were found, they were put to death. On one occasion, a missionary said that one of the contacts was discovered, moving about in the marketplace, was taken out in the square, set on fire, burned to death someone talking to the missionary said, well, I bet you have a hard time finding somebody who will be a contact. And the Chinese Christian began to weep and said, they have a waiting list in Red China two years long to be a contact. And when they get together in their worship, They pray, God, give me the privilege of being a contact. I walked up and down these halls yesterday trying to prepare my own spiritual heart for this service. And I went into the high school rooms And on my knees, I pray, God, out of this group that will meet here today, give us a contact. And I came in this place here praying that God would bind Satan from this midst. And I said, oh God, give us some men and women who are willing to lay down their life for you. That's my prayer. Will you join me? After we've had a moment of prayer, we're gonna stand quietly to our feet.